You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of international correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. Angela Merkel's decision to seek a fourth term as German Chancellor has been greeted with a sigh of relief in many European capitals. Here, they say she is the prospect of continuity and halting the slide towards populism that is sweeping the West. Is that, I asked Derek Scali, our Berlin correspondent, how it's being seen in Germany? In South Korea, the last few weeks have seen a series of mass demonstrations put at over a million strong, demanding the resignation of President Park Jun-hee over alleged corruption. I'll be talking to our Asia editor, Clifford Coonan, about the scandal that has rocked the country. And I'll be talking to our theatre critic, Peter Crawley, about the unusual attempt by the cast of New York production Hamilton to hold a member of their audience, newly elected VP Mike Pence, to account. Not the done thing, says Donald Trump. First to Berlin. Der Scali, most of Germany's allies in the capitals around the EU have reacted with enthusiasm to Merkel's decision to run again in the 2017 elections. They may not agree with her on everything, but she represents sort of continuity and a bulwark against the tide of populism that has swept uh, Europe. But Germans, you say, have responded with respect, but not exactly euphoria. Even her allies in Bavaria appear doubtful. Yes, I mean, she's been in power now since 2005. Uh, A lot has happened since 2005. And I think even her critics would say that Merkel has been a a steady hand on the tiller, that they might not always agree with her policies, but at least she marks a certain amount of continuity in a very unsteady unsteady world. I think what people here are, I mean, there's a certain amount of resignation that she sort of, it's there's inevitability about it. The German word is... There's no alternative to Merkel. And that um, even her coalition partners, the Social Democrats, have said, look, Merkel is clearly running out of steam um, and that they would uh, she has her achievements, but she no longer stands for the future, the future challenges, whether it's climate change or how to deal with Donald Trump. Um, so on the one hand, you've got her, her fan club headed by uh, Barack Obama last week saying she was the last of the veterans and that if he could vote in Germany, he would vote for her. And then just in Germany, obviously, people jockeying, looking ahead to next September's federal election, saying that, well, maybe Merkel has made her contribution, but uh, three terms is enough. Please leave. Of course, there is no limit on uh, on terms or her her mentor, Helmut Kohl, tried to get a fifth term. He fell at that fifth hurdle. Uh, but if she wants to beat her boss's, her former boss's record, she would have to run again, not only next year, but four years after that again. And uh, was it Conrad Adenauer as the last one to, to make the four year? Exactly. If she, if she, Angela Merkel has said she wants to run next year in 2017 and that she wants to run for a full four years, if she does that, she will overtake Conrad Adenauer. He's the second longest running uh, German leader. He was the founder of her Christian Democrats. So uh, one way or the other, if she gets back into power next year, and that is a big if because the political landscape here has changed, she could at least be uh, Germany's second longest uh, serving post-war chancellor. But again, next year's election will be, as she uh, herself, uh, a very difficult and a very different election to 2013. Now, the perception in the West, and, and you, you talked about Obama, is that Merkel alone stands now as the West's great last hope for liberal democracy. But in, in some ways, uh, it's also true to say that Merkel couldn't impose her will on things like the distribution of refugees or, or in fiscal disciplines in, in, in the EU. 
No, this is it. I mean, the notion of German dominance of the EU was 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 uh, high in people's minds during the during the um, the banking crisis and during uh, the euro crisis. Um, but that was largely because that was about uh, we need money to solve this problem and who had the biggest checkbook, and that was Germany. But as soon as it came to the matter of refugees, um, Merkel acted, some would say, unilaterally without asking her EU partners. And when she looked over her shoulder for the expected solidarity, nobody was there. Nobody has ever backed her up on that. So it's uh, Sweden, Austria and Germany. So Germans know the limits of Angela Merkel's power. And Merkel herself, she said this notion of she's sort of the last woman standing as and the leader of the liberal free West was sort of grotesque and absurd. I mean, as people have pointed out, like, Germany has a very modest army and it has absolutely no military appetite to act alone. So the notion of being a leader with sort of a big army behind you, they've no atomic bombs. Um, so it's more, uh, I think, more of a turn of phrase than anything else. But I think there is a sense among, um, let's say, the German establishment here that in a world gone mad, Angela Merkel does hark back to an era of perhaps in what we will in, in future, in the near future, look back on as a term of relative sanity, even if it was a crisis era. There's an appealing uh, modesty to her sometimes, too. And I, I, I came across a quote from her in the last few days, and she she spoke about no person alone, even with the greatest experience, can change things in, in Germany, Europe and the world for the better, and certainly not the Chancellor of Germany. Um, polls suggest that she is far from unbeatable. Um, she was been, she's been damaged particularly by what, what you're referring to, the open door to, to migrants. But where where is she in the polls at the moment? And ha are they likely to uh, reflect the same sort of share of vote next year? Well, she's she's not unbeatable, but she's still the woman to beat. Um, she Her party, the Christian Democrats, are, are down 10 points on where they were last year. Last time around in 2013, they almost got an absolute majority on their own. They're down 10 points, so they have to make up that or some of that if they have a chance of getting back into power. But of the three realistic options based on today's poll numbers, uh, tomorrow's next German government, two of those three options involve her. That would The first would be a, a yet another grand coalition, a left-right coalition with the Social Democrats. That would be the third. Um, but most people are saying uh, this, is, this is not a good idea for Germany because it has such a tiny opposition. There's very little control on government affairs. The second option would be an untested option for her. She could reach across the political divide to the Green Party, who have been making some noises that perhaps they're not as left-wing radical as they used to be, and uh, maybe sort of a conservative climate change government could be a way to go. And that would be certainly have an attraction for Merkel. Um, but she could be the, she could be the winner next September and actually be elected out of government if the Social Democrats, her current junior partners, if they go across to uh, the left side of parliament and take advantage of this left wing majority that has been existing in German politics since Merkel has been in power. So you could have an SPD led government, a three head good government with the Greens and the left party, who are the successors to uh, East Germany's old Socialist Unity Party. And that history has so far made that an unattractive option for the Social Democrats. But um, if they want to um, one-up uh, Angela Merkel, maybe that will be a way they'll go next year. At present, the, the Social Democrats say it's unlikely, but um, who knows? Now, in, in terms of the, the threat from the, the far right, um, you wrote the other day that about 28% of people hold what might be called anti-elitist neo-right-wing views. They wouldn't all support alternative for Deutschland. 
uh, but it, it's a substantial block. Um, and the AFD has welcomed Merkel's uh, candidacy. Is that is that just bravura? No, I mean, it's it's they claim in public, of course, that another four years of Merkel will be the worst thing for Germany. But uh, Merkel running for re-election is the best thing that could happen to them. They need a they need a villain, a villainess, and Merkel is for them the is sort of the Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in one. She's responsible for the euro crisis and endangering German savings. She's the woman who invited in the Muslims and has threatened us all with, you know, the underlying tone is that we're all going to be blown up in the morning by Islamist extremists because of Merkel. But they're very clever. They pitch it to the bottom of the German electorate and the top, sort of the the um, prosperity chauvinists who believe that you know the ECB is 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 a big problem at Angela Merkel is somehow involved with low interest rates as well. So they're 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 pitching themselves as an anti-establishment party, and Angela Merkel is establishment with a capital E. And are we any clearer about who the socialists, the SPD, will put up against her? No, that's the other unsure un, un issue. They say they're going to wait until next January. Um, at present, it would be Sigmar Gabriel. He's been leading the Social Democratic Party for many years, and he's the only one of the top leaders who hasn't run against her in the last years. Um, so he would have first refusal. But um, Martin Schulz of the European Parliament, the president of the parliament, he has also indicated he would be interested. Um, so which of them wants to take what many people have agreed is kind of a poison chalice? Um, that's That remains to be seen. They say we want to concentrate on policy, not on personality. But um, the question is, if, if they believe that Merkel has just outstayed her welcome by running for a fourth term, um, they might believe uh, that would be an attractive proposition. But as I said, they would then need to say, are you prepared to do what was previously unthinkable and form an anti-Merkel coalition with the Greens and the left? So before they decide on who they want to run, they have to decide, have they an option to get rid of her and put in a social Democrat chancellor? And they haven't given any indication on whether they're uh, the courage of their convictions on that front. Thank you very much, Derek. You're listening to The Irish Times. South Korea's Conservative President Park Hyung-gai uh, has become embroiled in a huge controversy over her 40-year relationship with close friend Choi Soon-sil. She has been indicted on criminal charges, including extortion and abuse of power, and two former presidential aides have also been indicted. Give, give us some of the background to this relationship. Well, they have a, a relationship that is... Uh, she's been compared to Rasputin, um, which in some ways relates to her, her father because her father was an advisor, um, uh, Choi Soon-sil's father. Um, he ran a cult um, which was involved, a kind of a shaman-like cult, uh, which was involved in uh, advising um, the, the, the parents of, um, of Park Yun-hai. So um, it's a kind of a shamanistic cult story, but there's also... Uh, tied in with much more contemporary issues such as um, um, embezzlement, fraud, and um, abuse of power by the way that uh, they may have had an in input into what speeches were made. And then behind it all again, there's another layer where the Chabal, uh, these giant industrial groups who, who um, are behind much of, of the South Korean economy, have also been put under pressure from the politicians uh, and from from Choi Soon Sil to contribute into into a fund, and the fund was going into the pocket of uh, Choi Soon Sil. Yeah, there's some around sixty two million euros in donations uh, for these foundations that that Miss Choi set up, 
the money was used for various things. Uh, the, the headlines in Korea have been pretty lurid. Uh, one of the ones that seems to have really angered people is that she used a, um, a fair amount of the money uh, to help train her daughter uh, in equestrianism. Her daughter was an Olympic a contender in equestrianism and a lot of the money went into training her daughter and it's these kind of things that have really angered the the korean population and led to these huge demonstrations that we've seen now for the last four weekends in seoul uh with people taking to the streets to to call for um park yonha's impeachment now tell me a bit about park her, herself uh she's the daughter of a former korean uh, leader and uh, her politics are very conservative that's right. Um, there was a certain amount, when she was up for election, um, there was a certain amount of discussion about the life that this this uh, this woman has had. Um, her her mother, uh, Yuk Yong-soo, was assassinated in 1974 uh, during an attempt on her father, who was the dictator Park Chung-hee, who was subsequently assassinated in 1979. Um, after this happened, um, Choi's father, Choi Tae-min, who was head of this this cult, the Church of Eternal Life? Um, he said that he could talk to her dead mother. Um, so the the relationship with with Choi is is very old and very deep. And this is kind of where Park is coming from. She came to power uh, on a conservative platform, and in some ways, people were looking for a strong leader. Um, and many people, I think, are surprised at at, at the level of of corruption surrounding her. Uh, but people are saying that it kind of harkens back to the era uh, before the mid 80s when when Korea really opened up and became a proper democracy, uh, that it, it harkens back more to the period of, of the dictators and of the strongman rule and of, of the kind of taxic, tactics that people saw during that era. And her politics are very much tougher on, on the, the issue of the North, which She's not in favour of any uh, softening of, of the South Korean position, isn't that right? That's right. She's taken a very hard line in North Korea. Um, every time they um, they test a nuclear device or a ballistic missile, uh, she's responded, in, uh, not in kind, but with um, usually by involving Washington uh, and staging military drills and also introducing this uh, THAAD system, uh, which is an anti-missile system, that uh, has everyone in the region up in arms. Uh, well, not everyone, but it has China and Russia up in arms because they believe that uh, the Americans will use it not only against North Korea, but also against their missile systems. So she's been quick to, to bring Washington in when uh, the North Koreans have rattled their sabers. So she's keen to give pound for pound what, what, what Pyongyang is doing. Now, all the major South Korean daily papers, as well as the opposition parties, and even some members of her own uh, party have called on her to resign. Uh, and she now may face impeachment. Uh, how how complicated is that and how likely? There's two different schools on this. Um, a lot of people say she won't step down because uh, she, as long as she's president, she has protection. They can't, um, she, she can't be... Um, she can't be investigated. She can't. She can't. Uh, well, she will be investigated, but uh, she can't face uh, prosecution as long as she's she's in in the presidency. Um, at the same time, there may be too much pressure from the opposition. The opposition until now has been seen as rather weak. It's not. It's not. Uh, it, there's basically eight parties who 
who could potentially uh, oppose her, but there's no one who stands out in the way that that she does, and no one who kind of no kind of figurehead or strong figure. So um, the opposition would have to agree on various things in order to to impeach her. Um, however, with the with the mass protests going on, um, and it's nearly a million people in in Seoul every weekend now, which is a, a big number, um, she is going to face increasing pressure. Um, so it'll, it remains to be seen how that how that plays out. Perhaps she'll she's already apologised. Perhaps she'll find some way of of rolling things back. And it, an impeachment would involve um, two thirds of the nine judge constitutional court. So it's difficult for them to get the majority that they need. That's right. It's very difficult to to impeach someone in Korea, um, and especially in the absence of any meaningful replacement. Um, she's she's unpopular. Um, or there is these mass protests against her, but it's by no means certain that were, were even another election to be forced, that she wouldn't win because she still has a very strong core support. Um, a lot of people in Korea don't seem to have a problem with um, things like the idea of a shamanistic advisor, um, uh, sort of a Rasputin-like figure um, holding the ear of the, uh, having the ear of the president. So that might not be as, as big an issue as, as people think. Um, once you get outside of Seoul, it's a very different position. A lot of people um, remember with maybe if not fondness, but they certainly have no major problem with the fact that, you know, she comes from the dictator era um, and that uh, she has this um that she has this relationship with with Choi. So um it, it remains to be seen how that would actually whether she would actually lose an election were another election before to be forced. Thank you very much, Clifford. In the history of Irish theatre, perhaps the most famous confrontation from the stage with an audience was Yeats when he told the audience that you have disgraced yourselves again in response to riots at the opening of O'Casey's Play of the Stars in 1926. Peter Crawley, Yeats was taking on a large part of the audience and in Washington last week, the cast of Hamilton uh, had one man in its sights, Mike Pence, the VP-elect, and the actor Brandon Victor Dixon made the following appeal. We welcome you and we truly thank you for joining us here at Hamilton and American Musical. We really do. We, sir, we are the diverse America who are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us. Our planet, our children, our parents, or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights, sir. But we truly hope that this show has inspired you to uphold our American values and to work on behalf of all of us. All of us. As, as he seems to imply, um, this was very much in the spirit of Hamilton. And, and what was the audience reaction and indeed Pence's reaction? That's an interesting question. The audience reaction had begun far earlier than that address that we heard, which was delivered at the curtain call. Um, the audience reaction started as soon as Mike Pence entered the theatre. So this is this is Hamilton, uh, an American musical, uh, the biggest Broadway smash. And I know people talk a little over effusively about Broadway smashes um, uh, in theatre and live performance, but this really is a phenomenon. I mean, a, a, a truly um, staggering success. Um, and you can't get tickets for for love, possibly for money, um, but money that will be sort of setting you back about two months' rent. Um, when Mike Pence arrived, he dragged in the baggage of the election and the baggage of his political history. 
Um, he is a man who, as governor of Indianapolis, had pursued um, anti-gay legislation um, uh, quite overtly and had pledged wholeheartedly his support to Donald Trump's anti-immigrant platforms, um, including support for building the wall with Mexico that Mexico, of course, would pay for um, and um, for banning uh, the entry of Muslims into the country until they knew what was going on. So tension is pretty high when you encounter a musical that is based on the idea of doing a hip-hop adaptation of the founding of America, with America's forefathers played by a very diverse cast of Latino and African-American performers. Um, a show that began, uh, its first uh, airing was at the White House in front of Barack Obama uh, by invitation to its creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, a, a writer and an actor of Puerto Rican heritage, um, who, who revised the faces of the, uh, the signatories to the Constitution and Declaration um, with black and brown actors, as he said rather proudly. It's a very optimistic, um, a very earnest, very open-hearted show, which values the contribution to what immigrants did for the founding of America and contains lines within rap and hip-hop verses um, like, immigrants, we get the job done. Um, if you go to Hamilton, I think you buy into that particular soaring belief in this American project. And if you're Mike Pence, um, I think you probably you draw a lot of understandable and justifiable questions as to why you have come to this <laughs> to this show. Mike Pence does not strike you um, on uh, on the basis of his politics uh, or his cultural awareness as an automatic natural fan of musical theater um, or as a necessarily very comfortable resident of New York City. And here he was in the bluest city in the bluest state um, in the United States um, to see a musical whose tenets and beliefs seem to run very contrary to his own. So during the performance, the crowd reacted volubly and um, sometimes vociferously. He was booed and he was cheered when he entered. Um, the performance was interrupted several times during its more significant elements, such as the aforementioned um, uh, line, uh, ex exalting immigrants, um, and also um, lots of um, uh, witty daubs in the margins it's about your, what governing means. It's your sense that the, the, the cheers and applause during the production was not so much directed at the at the uh, cast was, on the stage, but at Pence. I fact. mean, th there was a performance going on on stage and there was a performance going on in the auditorium where sort of both kind of the intention of the show and the response of the audience was magnified because of who was there and who was watching. So it, it, this this is, I mean, it's, I, I, I think you can, you can just about cast Hamilton as a piece of political theatre, although it doesn't subscribe to kind of the Baltier notions that we usually associate yeah. with political theatre. But this performance performance was pure political theatre, and it's been interpreted in any number of ways as such. Yeah, I mean, Dixon himself uh, talked about uh, more or less the tradition of agitprop in the theatre and, and, and said that art is meant to bring people together, it's meant to raise consciousness. And and so th this was a very natural extension in his speech at the end of, of what he'd been doing on the stage. But also that art is meant to confront and to challenge. So kind of so so after Mike Pence's reaction, which was I th I think pretty sort of you know mute and respectful, he was asked as he was leaving the the auditorium to stay and listen to the words that had been written by Lin Manuel Miranda, um, the director Thomas Kelly, and the producer I think uh, Mr. Sellers. I may have forgotten his first name, but it was this was a sort of this was a carefully thought out event. This was this was part of the theatre. The the much bigger reaction, and of course now, now sort of the, the more infamous reaction, and typical of the president-elect, um, was a series of tweets saying that this was um, a rude harassment of a good man and they should apologise. Um, and also, and significantly, that the theatre is a, um, a, a safe and special 
single place. And it's this kind of uncharacteristic foray into artistic policy on Donald Trump's behalf that has really sort of met most reaction. This is only the start, of course. And I mean, Trump also ventured to criticise their performances, which he said was much overrated. That's that's a, a also characteristic of a man who who tends to diminish anything that is a that is a bugbear of him at the time. So so we had the failing New York Times, for instance, um, and always described as such. Or we've had the unfunny Saturday Night Live whenever it um, parodies Trump uh, in its impersonations. So so Trump Trump is a very vocal and frequent critic of things that he dislikes. Um, he he's been informed that Hamilton is overrated because Hamilton has had the temerity to to it. have a oh no he hasn't, which actually sets him out among the billionaire class of New York. <laughs> Um, we don't have an awful lot of insight into the intellectual curiosities and cultural life of Donald Trump, um, but he has seen the musical Evita several times, um, and he's a big fan of Citizen Kane. You can draw any inferences you want from, from both of those. Well, the cast has said that it sees no need for an apology, and uh, in fact, Pence hasn't asked for one. Pence was relatively unperturbed, it appears, uh, but but uh, Donald is much more thin-skinned. Uh, it would seem so. Now, uh, one another another interpretation was that this was a convenient sideshow in what could have been or should have been a difficult week for the president-elect, um, who had who had settled his his legal troubles over Trump University for the to the tune of twenty-five million, pretty much the same day. Um, and who had made a series of um, high-profile appointments to his incoming government um, that raised eyebrows and, uh, as um, as the actor um, uh, referred to, uh, alarmed and anxious response from not just the members of the Hamilton's cast, but from a, a, a large amount of American, uh, the American public, and and the global community. Um, so this this seemed like a this seemed like a a, a way to distract uh, the general public from sort of more salient matters in the eyes of many. But this also seems to matter because it seems to be very much part of a, a kind of a resurgence, rekindling of the culture wars, um, which may come to define and already seems to be defining the early days of, um, of Donald Trump's um, expected presidency. Now, the interaction between stage and audience uh, that we've seen here more generally brings to my mind certainly a recent book uh, which I enjoyed called The Irish Stage, A Legal History by W.N. Osborne. Mm. This may be a bit obscure and a bit nerdy of me to refer to it, but he discusses the right to heckle. And a judge in, 19, in 1822 ruled that censure or approbation must be the expression of feelings of the moment for it, for it uh, if it be premeditated by a number of persons confederated beforehand to cry down even a performance of an actor it becomes criminal in other words what he's saying is to heckle is legal if not premeditated mm. in which case it's a conspiracy but it's not really part of our tradition here it is part of other traditions i, w- I wouldn't say that it's not part of our tradition i'd say that probably kind of in the last century or so, um, the Irish capacity to spontaneously or not so spontaneously erupt in heckles or feedback or catcalls or riots um, has diminished. And we have sort of, we sort of um, burnished this idea that we have a very kind of um, volatile um, political theatre history that's always sort of present in any, in any act of performance in the land. Um, in truth, it's become much more polite. But the idea of heckling through to complaining through to disrupting performance has remained sort of in the continuum of Irish theatre probably over since at least since 1906 um, right up to 
Um, the kind of political performance that results in something like Waking the Feminists, which uh, early last week um, uh, marked a year of disruption, of positive disruption, which um, which gathered an awful lot of beneficial um, advances. It has changed the policy of the National Theatre, for instance, to strike for gender parity. Um, this was born from a moment announcing a theatre programme and a response that happened both in social media and on, on stages subsequent. And something like that is happening with Hamilton, which kind of has more than a, a live platform, but also a mediated platform in the media and in social media. So kind of it's, it's political theatre in the 21st century has its roots in political theatre through the centuries. But the idea of a, a communing between the cast and the audience is is one which can only do theatre good, actually. Absolutely, and it's and it's very much kind of a testament to um, the potential of people coming together in a space. So that any assembly is inherently full of political potential. It's really interesting to to think back about sort of the legal foundations of the right to heckle and how they might be undermined by a conspiracy, a premeditated idea to do this. Because actually, kind of in our most famous examples of the the, riot, the, the aforementioned um, uh, a Plow in the Stars riot and, of course, the play with the Western World riots, those were absolutely premeditated. They were a long time brewing, you know? They were not spontaneous eruptions as an audience broke up at the, at the mention of the word shifts. Um, Lady Gregory telegrams to Yeats famously in, in 1906. That wasn't really the case. It was a kind of... This, this was a political movement and it was built up on a rise of sort of antipathy towards, you know, the state, the fledgling state, um, the the uh, the um, the collusion of the national theatre in in receipt of funding the first such, such organisation in receipt of funding from the state and kind of whether or not it was um, a, a puppet or a prop and how it was a set, in a sense asserting its own independence by doing something so inflammatory. Um, uh, here again in Hamilton, this was not an, an, an absolutely spontaneous event. This came from um, a, a, a story has been built up um, with ill feeling and, and um, an urgency uh, to, to protest. Um, however mildly, I think when you listen to those words, it's, it's an extraordinarily civil way of addressing um, your concerns to the vice president-elect. It was certainly uh, scripted in advance and therefore in in the definition of the Irish law would have been a conspiracy. More importantly, just 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 on this, because this is probably a, a, an issue, it's it's in an, in terms of American law, you could write back to the Constitution. This is sort of, this is a First Amendment issue. Um, and uh, the president-elect's very troubled and increasingly troubling relationship with free speech is being played out in this act of political theatre. Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks to Derek Scally, Clifford Coonan and to Peter Crawley and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. (laughs) 